Welcome to episode 93 of Love That Album Podcast. After three months of doing research on the effects of listening to Lady Gaga and the Nolan Sisters' songs simultaneously, Morris has finally decided to rejoin humanity and talk about music he actually likes for the podcast listening community. You have been warned. For his first show back, Morris is joined by first-time presenter Pat Monaghan to discuss the 1983 album Treeless Plane by Western Australian band The Triffids. Pat had a direct connection to the band and its songwriter and singer, David McComb. The band recorded five official studio albums in its lifetime, although they recorded much more music than that, released on cassettes, sold at gigs. They're a product of their environment, a band of outsiders in their music community from a remote part of the country. McComb wrote songs about the oppressive nature of summer, not the fun romantic summer of the Beach Boys songs and of other outsiders. He was extremely literate and in esteemed company at that period, with other songwriters like Robert Forster and Grant McLennan of Brisbane's Go-Betweens. Morris and Pat discussed Treeless Plane, but also a lot about the Triffids' career, the stylistic and production differences to the album that followed, their musical peers, McComb's literary influences, and many other things. So grab a beer, saddle up your red pony, and head for that wide open road, as Pat and Morris make today the day of the Triffids. kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 93 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. In case you happen to remember me, I used to do this podcast up until about a few months ago, and then I took a bit of a sabbatical. You know, that's just what happens sometimes. Sometimes people just let podcasts fade into the distance. I didn't want to do that. I got some very, very fine people out there in the community to take over recording the show for me. So at this point, I'd like to give a huge thank you and a huge call out to Eric Reanimator, who also did his compilation episodes as well as doing a couple of the main episodes. Uh, my good compadre from the See Here podcast, Mr. Tim Merrill, the administrator, the head honcho at Feed My Ears, John Ross, the host of the fantastic Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide podcast and the My Top 10 radio show on 89.9 Hills Radio out there in Adelaide, Mr. Michael Persh, and my friend and good work compadre, Mr. Dave Blom. Thank you all to you wonderful people for uh, holding the fort for the last few months. The seat has been kept nice and warm. For better or for worse, I'm back. And so on the other end of a Skype connection is a man who I've been wanting to do a show with for a very long time. The show's almost five years old, and I think I've been wanting to do something with him for almost a good chunk of that time, but finally it's happened. Good things come to those who wait. So I'd like to introduce you on the other end of a Skype connection, my good friend, Mr. Pat Monahan. Good evening, Pat. Hello, Morris. How are you doing? 
I'm in good health. How's yourself, sir? Fine, thank you. And welcome back. Good to good to have you back. Thank you. I highly appreciate it. I'm very, very excited, a little bit nervous, but hopefully uh, we'll have some great conversation tonight. So uh, before I get you to give a little bit of a background as to who you are and what you do in your music background, I should say that the purpose of tonight's show is to discuss an album and a band that you have a lot of love for and the personal history with. I'm talking about the band The Triffids from Perth and their debut album, I guess on a main label. They'd recorded cassettes beforehand, but uh, their first major label album called Treeless Play from 1982 oh gosh i should know this 1983 1983 there you go first show back and i'm already not good on my facts but there you go 1983 (laughs) (laughs) oh well you know the the people out there they need to know that we know this stuff they want to be educated so before we get into talking about the triffids and treeless plane just give the listeners out there i mean some of them may know you and some of them may not so Give us a little bit of a background as to uh, your place in the Australian music scene. I guess my place in the Australian music scene is sort of vague and dubious. I was raised in Western Australia, and while I was studying at university there in the early 80s, I got involved with public radio and uh, had a couple of radio shows focusing on local music with a couple of other people, a guy called Craig Ridden and Mike Shuttleworth. And then I got involved with the student union there, eventually became the student union's activities officer. So I booked lots of bands in the early to mid 80s. Bands such as the Violent Femmes, the Saints, the Triffids, mm. Models, Hoodoo Gurus, lots of things like that. And I continued doing radio shows and interviewing bands and writing for a few newspapers. And then when I left that, I began working for various bands as a stumbling stage roadie and managing bands, I guess. That's a pretty loose use of that word. <laughs> And then I ended up working at Dada Records, which was one of WA's preeminent independent record stores. Right. Worked there for 10 years. Then I came to Melbourne and worked at Agogo Records for five and a half, six years. Then Basement Discs for 14 and a half years. Wow. And now I'm running Rocksteady Records, my own business in the Melbourne CBD, and occasionally contributing to the Australian mood on 3RRR. Now, you've, you've been doing the Australian mood for quite some time, haven't you? You and uh, Neil Rogers go back away? We, we do, but that's very, very kind of you to put it that way. I think Neil is occasionally has a lapse in judgment. <laughs> no, no, none of this <laughs> modesty. No, it's true. And that gets me in to bang on about one of those bands that I probably just mentioned, whether it's the go-betweens or the Triffids or the Scientists or something like that or the apartments. So he gets me into, I don't know, just waffle. Yeah. That's what makes public radio so much more interesting, though, than I guess mm. mainstream mm. radio because they, they were back announced the track. But the people who love Triple R and PBS uh, and you know, whatever your local public radio station may be on whatever side of the planet you're on, uh, we, we love that because we want to hear what the announcers have to say about such great bands and neil does a great job and he uh, obviously knows that you do too so very kind so t- just a little bit for the listeners out there certainly the ones in melbourne but i know that you will do mail orders as well so talk a little bit about your new venture the good ship rock steady records rock steady records has been a long time dream and has become a reality in the last couple of months 
It's primarily a vinyl outlet in Mitchell House, an old Art Deco building on the corner of Lonsdale and Elizabeth Streets in the Melbourne CBD. Mm. I guess, as you could no doubt deduce from the name, it reflects my passion for reggae, ska, rocksteady, roots, dub, etc. But also I have a fairly profound fondness for soul, R&B, hip-hop, jazz, and I guess music in most of its forms. And also I'm very passionate about Australian artists. So it's got lots of Australian independent and otherwise artists on vinyl and, and indeed CDs because vinyl's expensive to manufacture. Mm. So if an artist has a CD out and that's the format they've chosen, then that's the format I'm happy to stock. You know, I welcome and encourage lengthy discussions over the counter about the merits of various releases and artists. I think that's, yeah, I think, think that pretty much covers it. It certainly does. Look, so if people want to uh, find you, you've already gone and said Mitchell House, which if you live in Melbourne is sort of near the corner of Lonsdale Street and Elizabeth Street. You have to sort of know the building because it's not apparently obvious just by walking past Mitchell House that you're actually resident in the building unless you're across the street and you have that lovely window display. But if you're just walking past, you have to know. So yeah, Mitchell House near the corner of Lonsdale and Elizabeth in Lonsdale. And if people want to uh, make contact with you on the interwebs, how can they do that? Uh, there's there's an, an Instagram account. There's a Facebook page. The website is at the moment just a landing page, but the the actual web shop with all its associated functions uh, will be opening in about three weeks, and that's at www.rocksteadyrecords.com.au. Fantastic. All right. I'm very, very excited that you've uh, gotten around to opening your shop. I'd probably say a whole lot of really nice things, but you'd only blush and feel, oh, no, don't say that, don't say that, so I won't. While acknowledging the fact that you are you know, a very intelligent human being, Oh, see, now I'm going to blush. And, you know, that <laughs> say about my shop is pretty much on the money. Uh, yes, absolutely. So uh, <laughs> Mel- Melbourne people who support bricks and mortar independent record stores, please go and check Pat out. I'm sure those of you who are in Melbourne who already know of Pat, some of the listeners here will do so. But if you're outside of Melbourne, even outside of Australia, hopefully when the website is fully up and functional, then Pat can service your needs. There'll be the virtual shop if that is the way that you can do things. But anyway, what we're going to do now is talk music. Before Pat and I talk about the Triffids, I'm going to uh, welcome back to the mic Eric Creanimator, who, as I said before, has done a sterling job the last few months. He did two of the regular episodes, and he also continued to do his compilation edition episodes of Love That Album, so my huge thanks to him. But no rest for the wicked, and he's continuing to do his album I love segment that he's been doing these last few years so this time around I gave him the profile I said right we're going to be covering this band the Triffids from Perth from the early 80s have a bit of a listen to them on YouTube's and come up with a suitable album that you love that would make a nice compliment and I think he's come up with something that suits very well it's a band from the well I'm not actually sure from which state they are he probably says it and I've forgotten but uh, the name of the band is True West and I I don't think Eric's talked about them on the show before Uh, the band True West they're part of the underground Grand Paisley scene and Eric is discussing predominantly their album Drifters from 1984 but he also does a little bit of discussion about another album that they put out a few months later called Hollywood Holiday uh, just basically to give a little bit of a contrast between the two albums and where they went within the same 12 month period so uh, without further ado let's have a listen to Eric 
And Pat and I will be back on the other side of Eric's segment to talk about the Triffids and their debut album, Treeless Plane. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 93, with Morris on this end of a Skype connection and Pat on the other end of a Skype connection. We'll be back shortly. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. that album crew it's eric reanimator back with a another album i love segment it's been a while since i've done one of these this time around i'm gonna be talking about well kind of a strange uh record uh it's called drifters and it's by the band true west but because i have it on a cd where it's coupled with the band's album hollywood holiday i might talk about that just a little bit as well true west were part of that paisley underground scene which i've spoken about before they were from the Valley of California near Sacramento, played around with Dream Syndicate, Green on Red, Rain Parade, Thin White Rope, all those great bands. Their uh, initial run was from 1981 till 1987, but apparently they've reformed in 2006 and are still out there plugging away. So without further ado, why don't we uh, check out some of the music on this album? Sounds 
works about this band and their music and this album in particular is the mixture of basically a bar band sound but with that 60s psychedelia the 70s dusty kind of uh, country rock uh, a little bit of a punk rock energy but an attention to detail there's uh, if you listen to this music on headphones you can hear the chiming guitars and you can hear that bird's influence which maybe you don't hear in other bands at the time well, I'll be the first to admit they're not my favorite of the Paisley Underground bands. They are right up there for me. They are essential to understanding part of that scene, which is not everybody was exactly the same. They were all playing in the same sandbox. They were all listening to Dylan and the Birds, and they were all listening to Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys and trying to mix that energy and bring those influences together. And as with any other scene that mixes influences of music from the recent past, you get different variations, you get different uh, focuses on different elements of that combination of sounds. And even within the same band, there's variation from album to album as they bring in new influences or are pressured to be more commercial or run into any kind of changes as musicians where their skill level increases, their knowledge of music increases their ability to create and construct music changes so in the case of true west they went from a more poppy polished rock sound on hollywood holiday to that more bluesy folky uh, roots rocky sound on the drifters album so just to juxtapose those two sounds and give you an idea i'm going to play some tracks now from the hollywood holiday album Safe 
once before and I'll say it again Yes, I said it all before, I don't want this night to So there's just a couple of tracks from Hollywood Holiday, including the title track. Hopefully that gives you a little idea of the juxtaposition of kind of the more roots rock, dark, brooding, uh, almost country-esque stuff from Drifters as opposed to on the earlier album. Now, True West is one of those bands whose LPs I used to see in the dollar bin, and I might have owned one of them at one point in time, but I think that went away in the great purge of 2002. And of course, with the vinyl revival now, I'm kind of kicking myself for not holding on to a lot of that stuff. But, say la vie. Either way, I think True West is an interesting band. They're worth checking out. If you can find their music in the dollar bin, or you find it online, or you go out and support them with seeing them live, wherever they may be, or picking up one of their albums. Uh, if you like this kind of music, and you, you like learning more about the uh, underground and things that were just bubbling below the surface during the 1980s, definitely check out True West. Okay, we're going to go out with what's probably their best-known song, which I'm actually pulling off of a compilation album, even though it appears on both Hollywood Holiday and Drifters. This is And Then the Rain by True West, and I'll catch you all next time. Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Oh,
And thanks very much, Eric, for another wonderful segment. He'll be back next month as per usual. Anyway, so Pat Monahan and myself are here to talk about 1983 album from the Triffids, their debut album proper called Treeless Plains. So uh, this was actually your pick of album. Now, I actually, I think I might have put it to you that I wanted you to come onto the show to discuss a little bit of Triffids and you said, yep, that's a fine idea. And I thought, oh yeah, he'll probably choose, you know, the iconic album Born Sandy Devotional, which I'll probably make some reference to at some stage in our conversation. But I'm really, really curious before we sort of like go talking about the 80s and the origins of the band, I'm really curious as to why Treeless Plane was your selection. I've thought about this a lot. It's probably true that Born Sandy Devotional is the most well-rounded Triffids album statement, I guess. And it achieved what David McComb, the principal songwriter and singer and guitar player, I guess the, the driving force in the band, wanted to do, which was to have a, a coherent statement mm. about on a theme rather than just a, a collection of songs that were worked up through the live set. So that's what Born Sandy Devotional is. And he, I think he filled, fulfilled that aim. And, and he probably did it again and again with Calenture and The Black Swan, which came immediately after it, those two albums did. But Treeless Plain, as I see it, was the Triffids first grand statement and it was also the fulfillment of a whole lot of promise and a whole lot of I, I guess you'd call them setbacks or stumbling blocks mm-hmm. that led to 1980 the late 1983 it was also as I remember they were the only band in Australia that had that particular sound which was two guitars bass drums violin and organ mm. and other bands went on to how can I put it? I don't want to say copy, but to be inspired by that particular lineup and that sound. And I'm thinking of bands like the Go Betweens. <laughs> ways were the, the Triffids forebearers in lots of ways. The go-betweens ended up with a violin player. The Bad Seeds ended up with a violin player. Right. And indeed with the Triffids bass player. Yes, Martin Casey, yes. So I think the sound that the Triffids had, particularly on Treeless Plane, was for a lot of people the first time that particular sound, a blend of the Velvet Underground, Bob Dylan from a West Australian perspective and a bit of television thrown in with also this kind of weird kind of folk sound. That was the first time I th- a lot of people had heard that sound in Australia. And that's just some of the reasons why I think it's, to me, their most significant record. Right. Uh, there's a few other reasons, but we can get into that in a little while. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, it's it's interesting that you sort of say that, you know, the Triffids were you know, a unique band in that regard. I mean, I was actually sort of going to bring up the go-betweens from Brisbane as I guess their cousins in that regard they did have if not quite a similar sound but you know given that the 80s were a big time I mean I guess leading on from the 70s but you know the early 80s were a big time of the pub rock bands you know you had your, your cold chisels and your midnight oils in the mainstream and you know, uh, Richard Clapton or, or or the Angels who were sort of doing that big Mark Opitz sort of sound on their records and this was a long way from that now I wasn't actually sort of paying much attention to what was happening 
learning on, you know, I wasn't listening to Triple R at the time. I was still here in Melbourne listening to 3XY and to, well, what was then EON FM, which became EON FM. And yeah, it was still, I guess the closest that they came to that sort of music would have been Paul Kelly. And I'll be sort of referring to him a little bit later on. But on the other hand, I think you know, there were bands like, you know, you've already gone and said, you know, the go-betweens, but maybe bands like The Church who are also doing things which, you know, not quite what uh, the Triffids were doing, but maybe not necessarily a million miles away either. And I, I wanted to ask you, because it, being from Western Australia, so you'd be quite familiar with what, I, I guess, you know, the live scene was. You were booking bands, as you said in the introduction. But, you know, there were bands like, uh, you know, the Scientists and, you know, the Hoodoo Gurus and, and the Stems, who I believe are actually having a reformation of sorts later on this year, which I'm very excited about. And all those bands are really, you know, I, I guess fit in more with that pub rock ethos that we sort of no Australian rock of the late 70s and through the 80s to be alike. So were the Triffids sort of like alone in what they were doing? I mean, how how were they accepted? Were there a substantial number of fans, even like at a local level? I'm not talking like at nat- national level with millions of albums selling or anything like that, but did they have enough of a fan base in Perth during their early years to sustain repeated gigs? There's about six questions in there. and <laughs> okay. I, I mean that, any of them that you want. No, I mean that in a really good way. The first time I heard the Triffids was in 1980 when I was listening to what I imagine you would refer to as student radio run out of the West Australian Institute of Technology, which later became Curtin University. And I was still in my last year of high school from memory. Uh, David McComb was already at Wait studying English and was majoring in, I think, creative writing with Elizabeth Jolly as his main tutor, who I think was a big influence on Dave's writing. And Tim Winton was either in the same class or one year above Dave. Wow, that's anyway, amazing. The Triffids, at, at, by 1980, had in one form or another been playing or even on a you know an amateur level in the equivalent of scout halls or in a friends parties and things like that sure. since 1977 under a few different names at that point and until well into the late 80s Perth was dominated by cover bands a hugely popular jukebox band who play they played the current top 40 or specialised in, you know, playing the entire, a couple of Angels albums, note for note, mm. or that, that kind of thing. And they would pull crowds, This is these cover bands would pull crowds of, on a weekend, three and a half to 5,000 people. Wow. And then they would have these multi-band spectaculars on a long weekend where five to six cover bands would play in these huge hotels. And at any point during the course of an afternoon into an evening, between five and 10,000 people conceivably would go and see these bands. And in amongst all that, there was this tiny original music scene operating off the circuit of these huge beer barns and bands like the Victims, the Mannequins, the Scientists, the Rockets, and a whole, maybe another 10 bands of uh, varying degrees of popularity would perform in, in these tiny venues that you know might hold a couple of hundred people. And way down that list were the Triffids, <laughs> who used to play at a venue called the Stone Crow, which was just outside of Fremantle. And they would maybe draw 25 to 50 people. It was 50 cents to get in. 
and they agonized over making you know, a dollar. <laughs> anyway, that was in the late 70s. In the early 80s, they 1979 and 1980, they entered 6NR, which was the student uh, radio at Wait. They, they had a songwriting competition and the Triffids won it by half a point, I think, from a band called True Confessions and the scientists came third by a point. Yep. And they won a competition to record a single, which was Stand Up, which is I heard the demo of that on student radio and a light bulb went on inside my mind and I thought, wow, this band sounds amazing. And I haunted record stores for ages until I finally found they, they released that and, and I bought it. <laughs> actually pretty terrible it just didn't sound the way i thought the band was going to sound i think david mccomb pretty much regretted that record's existence till the day he he passed on but anyway I, i'm not really answering your question no um, this is great this is fantastic um, the, the triffids managed to kind of just keep chipping away and just made this wimpy sound self-described wimpy sound that drew a small cult following. And when I say small, I mean 100 people maybe, mm. 100 committed fans. And even the, the big drawing bands on that circuit, like the scientists were probably, I don't know, maybe 250 people. Mm. The mannequins were doing really well and probably pulling three or 400 people, perhaps. Um, I'm not really sure. Bands like The Stems came much later. Okay. And also on, on, on a national basis, I think the Triffids were like largely inspired by what was coming out of Brisbane, chiefly the Saints, certainly the Go-Betweens, big, big fans of the Go-Betweens, but also the Go-Betweens were a band that I think David as a songwriter judged himself against, particularly Robert Forster as a writer. Right. Um, they also were big fans of the Boys Next Door, Stroke Birthday Party, mm -hmm. The Laughing Clowns, all those kind of bands. They were also big fans of the Sunny Boys, I have to say, and I don't think Dave where he is in the ether, wouldn't mind me saying it. I don't think he was terribly enamoured of the church. Okay. Yeah, I'm putting that pretty politely. Um, <laughs> and the Triffids, stop me if I'm getting ahead here, Morris. I'll like, jump in at any time. This is all gold. I'm, I'm more than happy to have you. I wanted you to set the scene because it, it'll put a lot of the actual discussion of the album and subsequent work into context. So this okay. is fantastic. By 1982, Dave had completed... I, I may have this slightly wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. He'd completed an English degree at Waite, mastering in, I think, creative writing. I think he knocked it off a year. If it was a three-year degree, I think he might have knocked it off in two years. Mm. The Triffids by this point had been through a few bass players and pretty much had the lineup of Dave on guitar and vocals, um, his brother Robert on guitar, violin and vocals, and Alzi McDonald, or Alan, um, on drums and vocals, who was David's long, lifelong friend. A few cart keyboard players, Jill Yates had been there, Margaret Gillard had been there, uh, a few bass players like Phil Kakoulis, who's one of the two leaders of the Black Eyed Susans. He'd been in and out of the band. Byron Sinclair, Will Akers, I think Byron was 
was back in the band as a bass player. The Triffids by this point, as I recall, had made eight, possibly nine album length cassettes. Wow. And that was in the space of roughly five years, something like that. I think that by 1982, early 82, they'd been to Melbourne and Sydney twice, driving across the Nullarbor, which if you've ever done it, I have not. It's fun one way once. <laughs> if you the way backs generally, as I remember it, awful yep. to do it again. You just go, oh, is there another way? Yes, and it's, co- then, it's called an aeroplane. Leave yeah, the car back, where it is. Yeah, back then <laughs> that was completely unaffordable for an independent band. So you drove for three days or three and a half. And I don't know if people these days can conceive of how far away Perth was from Sydney and Melbourne. It was it, you, bands considered going to England, right? Um, because Sydney and Melbourne were like the promised land for an original band. You you could only re- you would reach a certain level in Perth, and you had to get out. So David McComb was always ambitious and always testing himself and always wanting to prove himself as a writer and as a performer, as an arranger, as a I guess maybe an entertainer, but on a bigger stage. And against the very best, who at that point he would have considered Nick Cave and Robert and Grant, Mm. uh, the Oxley brothers. Paul Kelly hadn't really surfaced to a degree that maybe had attracted Dave's attention. That's right. I mean, I don't think like post came out till the mid 80s and pretty much what you said about the Triffids first single you know David you know, regretted that and I, I think you know Paul Kelly was on record as saying if he could take the first couple of albums that he did with the dots and bury them all in one big mm. hole he'd do it so mm. uh, yeah I think it was all about you know till post dots before he came into his own as as a songwriter but for sure yeah, certainly he was on the scene anyway and the Laughing Clowns would have been another band that David was deeply inspired by mm. anyway they'd been to Sydney a couple of times and had would slowly made inroads into Sydney. Been to Melbourne and found it much harder to crack, but I think they met the Moodists in, okay. in Melbourne. Yep. And uh, I think Dave always found the Moodists, particularly Dave Graney as a writer, to be incredibly inspiring. And they you know, lots of their gigs here in Melbourne were opening for the, the, the fledgling hoodoo gurus and or the scientists or something like that mm. so that sort of brings it up to about 1982 mid-82 where they've been to sydney a few times they've released another ep the reverie ep it's a crime it's a actually really really good and quite a a step on or two from their first single they release a great song that dave wrote called spanish blue nothing happens here To a degree is about growing up in the uh, Perth summer. I just wanted to interrupt you there because something that I was wanting to sort of speak on, and we will do so at greater length later on. We talk a lot in Australia about the Australian sound and time and place, and I think one theme that goes through 
I think all the Triffids albums is summer and summer in a half of the country that's very unpopulated. You know, we have summer songs on the East Coast and I'll make a specific reference later on that do not sound like anything that Dave McComb and the Triffids did. So I find that interesting to say, yes, it was a conscious thing that he liked to write about summer and you know, Western Australian summer as that's what he knew. Hmm. Dave hated summer. <laughs> it was really? a good inspiration for him. Yeah, he hated it. He hated water sports. I think he hated most sports, really. It's one of the reasons Dave eventually moved to Melbourne. It kind of, it, it, the climate suited him. Mm. Dave liked wearing coats and stuff like that. But yeah, he, I think Dave, even from the time he was you know, a high school student, well, everyone else was playing cricket or tennis or kicking a footy around. Dave would have been under a tree reading a book. Mm. And yeah, but but obviously he he was he, the environment that he grew up in, the physical environment. I think he it inspired him, even if he probably thought, you know, a lot of this is just surface, you know, the whole plastic nature, the kind of strange LA vibe that Perth has sometimes. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. He, he certainly reacted to it, sometimes against it, sometimes in love with it. But yeah, it was certainly a theme. Right. Um, so, okay, as long as we've gone and brought up the thing about summer, that was one of the earlier notes that I'd made for myself to discuss. So we've already gone and compared David, well, not so much compared, but you've cited that uh, McLennan and Forster of the Go-Betweens were you know, great songwriting inspirations for him. And Paul Kelly, I don't know, well, maybe he was not yet, but something that's in common about all those people as songwriters is, I think, the attention to detail in the lyrics. And this is a show that we like to often discuss about uh, lyrical themes but there are a lot of great storytelling songwriters out there. But I think the ones who work the best are those who you know, focus on the minutia. So I wanted to actually compare two summer songs and one's going to be the Triffids one and one's going to be Paul Kelly one just to sort of get a bit of a contrast here. But a song off the album that we're supposed to be focusing on here, Treeless Plain, there's a song, Hell of a Summer. It's been a hell of a summer to be lying so low. Dogs and cats dropping down in the street. Yellow bellies crying trick or treat. And I say to you, it's been a hell of a summer. And this song, it's the antithesis of you know what we know from the American, the Californian summer song, for which you know the Beach Boys or Dick Dale instrumental, you know that romanticizes the beach and the surf lifestyle. Uh, all things which I love. But here we've got you know the lyrics that you know present this I wouldn't say dark side to summer, but a very unpleasant side, oppressive side of summer. And he even sort of wrote a, a few years later for Black Swan the song, Too Hot to Move, Too Hot to Think. So this all reinforces what you said about him not being in love with summer, but yet there's still something more about Too Hot to Move that sounds dreamy. And so like post this album, the production sort of has a very dreamy side to it. But something about this song and about indeed a lot of this album in the production is 
sound, it still sounds 80s. Every Everything that he did has an 80s feel to it, but this is, I'm, I'm, I don't know if flat is a word, but it's certainly, it, it sounds very, very oppressive, maybe because it's very, very bass heavy. And you'd gone and said earlier on that Dave had gone and said that they had a very wimpy sound early on. And one thing I'll say about this album is it's muscular. There's nothing wimpy about it. If I could just jump in there for a second, Morris. Go for it. There's a real reason for that. And the reason is Martin P. Casey who joined the Triffids from memory in late 1982. And I think Martin is doesn't get enough credit for actually... When, when Martin P. Casey joined the band, they became, to me, the Triffids. I'd seen them before with other bass players who'd, who'd been good, but Martin is a really muscular bass player. If you've seen either play with the Triffids or with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, he was always positioned in the middle of the stage set up quite well that's where that's where he is with the the bad seeds and everything pivots around him Mm. with the triffids he would have been standing on the very lip of the stage with dave with his like his shoulders rolling with the bass lines and basically challenging anyone to kind of you know shift him and he made the triffids move from what was essentially a wimpy pop band to something else and they weren't like a rock band in the in terms of the Angels or anything or ACDC or right. any other the, the pub rock behemoths at the time. But they could now hold their own against the, the sound that a band like the Birthday Party had or mm. the Clowns. And with the greatest of respect to the go-betweens, who I love, um, I think the Triffids suddenly became this muscular live unit whereby they left bands like the go-betweens and their ilk slightly behind them in terms of a consistent live performing mm. outfit. So that part of like nine, late 1982 up until the release of Treeless Plane, it's one of the reasons I think it's a really pivotal year for the Triffids. They pretty much relocated to the east coast of Australia. They had a new female keyboard player in Jill Burt. They had a new bass player who signed on in I think late 82 yeah it would have been because I saw them for the first time in August of 1982 and, and Marty wasn't the bass player then they had signed to an offshoot of Mushroom White Records and be dropped which was a real slap in the face for Dave mm. and he just thought well he either had to decide whether to go back to Perth or else stick with it and he decided to stick with it the other thing to return to um hell of a summer yes um, that's a really interesting song in terms of the triffids lifespan it from the moment it entered their their live set i don't think it ever left it wow. i think it was played at pretty much every gig that the triffids ever performed there's a couple of songs on treeless plane red Pony's the other one that i think was in their live set every night so it was obviously a very important song to dave if you've ever been to perth and experienced a perth heat wave you're talking about a baking energy sapping heat of 37 38 39 37 38 41 42 for like 16 days in a row mm-hmm. whereby when you walk outside you feel the liquid in your eyes go zing. (laughs) And if you stick your tongue out, it dries and you can't do anything. And day after day after day of that, I guess it inspires you to do something or inspires you to do nothing. I think with David inspired him to write songs. I think that song also refers to other... He was often back in Perth for summer over Christmas. And I think the hell nature of it isn't just related to climate and temperature. Mm. I think a lot of it is relating to his circumstance, right. which was Dave was unlucky in love for 
most of the Triffitt's career. It's one of those things. You're in one of the most isolated cities in the world and you decide to make a career of being a musician and the music you make is not popular in your city, so you've got to go somewhere else, leaving people behind. And, you know, everyone's young. They don't necessarily want to be left behind. And if they're going to be left behind, they don't want to wait. They want to have fun too. And I think the hell nature of it was that he would come back to Perth at summer, perhaps reacquaint himself with partners or whatever, and then have to leave again. So Summer always had this bittersweet thing for Dave, that he was going home to see the people he loved, but then he had to leave again. So I think that was all wrapped up in it. So it's not just about the weather. I think it's about some kind of torment that he frequently went through sure. in the summer months in WA. But yeah. um, you were going to refer, you would have said you were going to compare Hell of a Summer to... Yes, I was going to compare Hell of a Summer to, well, only in terms of approach, a different approach of a song about summer, uh, and that's Paul Kelly's How to Make Gravy. Hello, Dan. It's Joe here. I hope you're keeping well. It's the 21st of December. Now they're ringing the last bell. If I get good behavior, I'll be out of here by July. Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please don't let them cry for me. See that once again we get we get a song there with a lyric that's you know not your Californian surf girls cars the summer life all is groovy we, you know, we got a song about a, a man who's writing from prison maybe a few months away from parole and he's going to spend another Christmas in prison away from his wife and loved ones and he's paranoid that his that his brother is going to make a play for his wife and yet musically it has not, maybe not quite a melancholy feel to it but it's it, I guess it has more in common with I guess other Australian bands summer sound I'm not quite there's something about Shane O'Mara's guitar the that, that sort of up and down up and down sort of thing and it, it sounds it's, it has a very summer sound which makes sense I can't describe it but it, those those of you out there who you know were probably you know, growing up listening to pop radio in Australia at the same time I was will know that guitar sound will know what I'm talking about and so whereas David has gone and written a song where the lyric is oppressive and the music is recorded and played and I mean this in you know in a good way is oppressive because it's what he's trying to convey we've got the different approach with Paul Kelly taking maybe what's a more traditional summer sound a little bit more light and breezy but taking a dark lyric maybe it's the Australian way to, to do a dark lyric quite often when storytelling but they've taken musically a very very different approach do you know if like by the time Paul Kelly was starting to hit big you know with the uh, uh, with gossip and then under the sun uh, there you go under the sun another you know, australian reference but uh, whether david was a fan or at least did he become friends or acquainted with paul um paul kelly was a huge triffitt's fan mm. um deeply influenced by david mccomb in the same way he was influenced by robert and grant and ed cooper but i, I think dave respected and admired paul kelly they worked together once they wrote a song together mm -hmm. which has never been released 
Uh, this was after the Triffids and after Dave had been quite ill, uh, he, after he'd had his heart transplant. Paul Kelly and Dave wrote a song together called Devil Please. Devil Please I'm trying to which you, I think you can find it on the Triffids website and it's been bootlegged a few times, uh, but it's never been released. It's a good song. It's very much a David McComb song with Paul Kelly sort of touches. But I, I know that Born Sandy Devotional in particular was a profound influence on Paul Kelly. I saw one of Dave's uh, holiday bands. Um, he used to come back to Perth with Triffids, as I said, around Christmas time and form cover bands which was slightly taking the piss out of Perth's cover band culture but they would do things like cover Bob Dylan songs or Flame and Groovy songs and Velvet Underground songs and um, Hot Chocolate songs and things like that and they opened for Paul Kelly a couple of times which I think Paul Kelly thought was a a huge honour that's where Paul Kelly found his version of Hot Chocolates it started with a kiss right right get off one of Dave's cover bands I think he's always been fairly open about that I don't think Paul Kelly was a huge influence on Dave or an inspiration, maybe a competitor to a degree. Mm -hmm. I think Dave perhaps admired him as a songwriter. If I was being a little bit harsh, I'd suggest that Dave saw Paul Kelly as coming slightly from a pub rock culture, Mm -hmm. which I know Dave pretty much loathed. But I think he always respected him as a songwriter and a fan of music and as an honourable human being. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you're right that How to Make Gravy is largely a song about lightness, about someone longing for freedom, either in the the music or even in the lyric or just the way the phrases are formed in in the singer's voice. And Hell of a Summer is all about dread and oppression and frustration and possibly violence. They're they're both certainly about summer, but they're, they're opposite sides of the same coin, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right there. Mm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the recording of the album. I wanted to know if you had any information about this. So, uh, from what I understand, Treeless Plane was recorded in under two weeks. Do you have any information about how those sessions went? I mean, were there arrangements done in the studio or did they come to the studio with these songs fully formed? I mean, you've already gone and said that in a space of five years, you'd already gone and effectively released nine full albums worth on cassettes, presumably presumably sold at a merch desk at gigs, but did they come into this? I mean, this, the album to me sounds like a confident band. I mean, it's it's not, and as well, it should, because it's not a debut album. It's just a debut album that was more readily available than at a back of a truck at a gig. So mm. they do sound like a confident band, but they went to different places following this album and we'll get to that. But so do you know anything about those sessions, whether Dave I, came in fully saying, this is how I want, this is what we want, or had they played these songs at gigs already? Uh, the, most of these songs had been really well honed at gigs. In the brief time, they were signed to White Records, which was an indie offshoot of Mushroom, mm. which is, I guess, once again, all all due respect, largely put together so that Mushroom could snare bands like Hunters and Collectors, Sardine V and a few others, but they'd grabbed the Triffids as well and 
recorded an EP called Bad Timing with uh, a guy called Rob Ash who was out here to record a few other bands but he had produced two records for one of Dave and indeed one of the go-between's favourite bands The Only Ones he was out as the Only Ones producer Dave thought wow you know, we get to work with The Only Ones studio guy and they'd made the Bad Timing EP well, It had really good songs on it, but the production was just murky nonsense. And then it didn't sell, despite the Mushroom Stroke Festival distribution wing. You couldn't find it anywhere, to the point where they launched it in Perth and none of the shops had copies of the record. So Dave had to go into his promo stash, take them around to the independent record stores and then sell them at the gig. And this was after signing to a company that had one of the best distributors in Australia. Anyway, uh, they got dropped by Mushroom. But Mushroom hung on to Dave's publishing, which he always thought was kind of weird. You don't want my records, but you want my publishing. So you obviously think I'm a good songwriter, but you don't don't dig the sound of the records. Anyway, they then went and released a couple of cassettes, the Dungeon Tape, which did really well as selling out of independent record stores and at gigs, and also had, to my memory, the first recorded version of Too Hot to Move, Too Hot to Think. Mm. Sorry, Too Hot to Think, Too Hot to Move, which didn't turn up on a Triffids album till their last one, The Black Swan, but it actually predates as a song, Treeless Lane. There's a reason it didn't turn up till much later, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> um, it was just a piece of paper he signed. So what I'm trying to say is that they, some of the songs that are on the dungeon tape ended up on Treeless Plane. They were also demoed for Mushroom or White Mushroom before they got dropped. The Triffids had done lots of tours of Sydney and Melbourne. They were a really good live act by this point. They'd done a number of tours with Sunny Boys, which taught them how to be a rock band playing to a few thousand people every night. They also, they knew that if they'd saved up enough money, they knew that when they went in and signed to Hot Records, that the idea was you pay for your own recordings so that they belong to you. Even if you're getting someone else to distribute them, if you can pay for your own recordings, then you own them forever in theory. So they went into the studio pretty much fully prepared. The songs had been tried and tested many times in a live situation. They'd done a live at the wireless for Double J, mm-hmm. which gave them the opportunity to run through some other things, ready for their, the recording of their debut album with a, a young engineer producer called Nick Mainsbridge, who found them, I guess if you were polite, you'd call it downtime at the recording studio he worked at. What in fact it was is that they would sneak in at night and disengage the studio alarm and record <laughs> when no one was meant to be in there at a, a studio called, studio called Beatroot, as in B-E-A-T, Root, R-O-U-T-E, right. uh, studios in Sydney in September, October of 1983. Sorry, August, September of 1983. And whenever Dave went into the studio, he had always had detailed production notes. Like he would have things like a string arrangement from like the opening of this song is meant ideally will have a string arrangement that evokes Lou Reed's Street Hassle 
or it will have the drum sound of Leonard Cohen's Avalanche or the keyboard sound of Tom Waits's Jersey Girl or the drum machine sequencer sound of Cherie by Suicide or something like that. There would be extensive production notes so that everyone knew the kind of sound they were meant to get so there was no time wasted and so that everybody was had the same focus. But the only real story is that they, I think they did it over 12 nights and by just basically breaking into the recording studio and with Nick disengaging the studio alarms, then they would go into the studio, record for 12 hours or something like that, or eight hours, midnight to dawn, whatever, and then re-engage the alarm after they had left, which was all well and good. They did it for, I think, pretty much free except paying for tape and possibly paying Nick Mainsbridge until the owner of the studio checked the alarm codes or the, you know, the alarm logs and realised that someone had been entering the building for 12 days in a row from midnight till 8am. I don't think he did much about it, except I know Nick Mainsbridge got the sack, but Nick went on to be a pretty significant engineer, producer, working for bands like The Sharp. Yeah, Hunters and uh, Collectors. Tall, yeah, Tall Tales and True, mm. Hummingbirds. He did more work with the Triffids, uh, Margaret Ehrlich, who he right. married. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's many other stories about the recording, only that Dave knew what he wanted in the studio. And I think nine times out of ten, whenever Dave McCone went into the studio, he always knew what he wanted, that there may be another person's name beside the, the role of producer on the back of a Triffids record, but pretty much all the Triffids records were produced by David McCone. So, okay, so my question next is, so David came in knowing what he wanted, and we've already sort of gone and attributed that a large chunk of the muscular sound of that album was due to Martin Casey. But by the time they got to their next full studio album, Born Sandy Devotional, the sound is very, very different. Once again, it's Nick Mainsbridge you know, recording as an engineer. So I mean, my, my first thought, until you went and you know, said, well, Dave came in knowing what he wanted. So it might have been a very conscious decision. I want Treeless Plane to sound like this, and I want Born Sandy Devotional to be realized completely differently. In your mind, do you think it was because he'd matured in what he wanted? Did he did he come away from Treeless Plane satisfied once he had like three, five, six months to look back at it, do you think? He looked back at that and thought, yep, that was exactly what I wanted. Or did he think, no, I'm really not satisfied. It was okay at the time. I want something different going ahead. And certainly every other album, even in The Pines, which deliberately goes a different way, altogether but every other album sounds completely differently uh, he matured as a songwriter or went different places as a songwriter but there are songs on born sandy devotional that i think could have fit quite nicely on treeless plane songs like chicken killer or uh, life of crime <laughs>
think either of those two would fit on Trailer Plane quite nice. So it's not just about the songwriting, but they have, I think they've gone into some more mature places with the uh, music arrangement and as well as the production. So there's a rather long, elaborate setup. <laughs> Basically, do you know of anything where David said, with you know, a bit of time and hindsight, that he looked back at Trailer Plane and thought, no, I'm not crazy about that. I want something different going forward. I think. Dave did that with pretty much every record he made. I realised it probably within the week I first met him that he was ridiculously gifted, ridiculously gifted, possibly the most gifted human being artistically I've ever met in my life. By the time he was 20, he pretty much read all the books that people tell you you're meant to read. He, While I was, I don't know, reading the NME, he was reading all the Russian poets. He's one of about five people in my life I know who, who's read all of Proust more than once. I've tried four times and haven't made it more than 30 pages into the first book. He, by the time he was, I don't know, let's say 24, he'd written 400 songs. And a lot of them were really, really, really good. And he'd written Stolen Property, which is one of the great Australian songs. Mm. He'd written that and a a few others that ended up on Born Sandy. He'd written them before he made Treeless Plane. And he was... 20 or 21 when he wrote Treeless Plane and he'd already recorded eight or nine albums worth before that. And then before he did Born Sandy Devotional, he recorded a mini LP called Raining Pleasure. I think he released three singles and another EP that he recorded in England and produced a a sort of a country record spin-off by a band called the Lawson Square Infirmary and had produced and played guitar on about three or four other bands' singles. He was never satisfied with what he'd done. He was always thinking about, what am I going to do next? There would have been songs that he had written around the time of Treeless Plane that he would have figured these don't fit on Treeless Plane. They belong on something else, which hopefully... This is me thinking in Dave's voice, or speaking in Dave's voice, if you know what I mean. Sure. That he would have been thinking, right, I'm going to make a label, I'm going to make a record for a major label from England or America. He, he was always going, we, okay, we've got to get out of Perth. Okay, we've got to get out of Sydney. Got to get out of Melbourne. Then go to London and go, okay, I've got to get to Europe. And then back in London, be going, okay, I've got to get to America. It was always the next thing and that the record record number two is not to sound like record number one and record number three is not to sound like record number two and the big thing about Born Sandy Devotional that Dave always had this idea that he would make a record or a a statement that was coherent and not just as he put it a collection of 12 well-honed live songs loosely themed around the subject of unrequited love he wanted to make a, a grander statement that would stand against his heroes. And by this point, I, I'm probably making him sound like, you know, something of a wanker. But um, No, not at all. I, uh, I, I mean, you're, you're, you're making him sound like someone who was completely beholden to the things that he loved, which you know, in, in a country where you know, sports and that sort of thing is revered, he just sort of went the other way. Mm. We become obsessed with the footballer and there's nothing wrong with that. You become obsessed obsessed with great songwriting and there, you know, there seems to be a problem. We've heard many stories about you know people who were restless souls. They wanted to improve and no, that doesn't sound wanky at all in, mm. in my he, book. He, he, by this point, he wanted to test himself against Nick Cave and I, I, even Nick Cave has admitted 
very generously that Dave was tackling the big themes, as Nick called it, way before Nick was. Mm. I think Dave, by this point, which is probably 84, 85, so 18 months, two years after Treeless Plane, he has he wants to test himself against Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen, <laughs> Joni Mitchell, Dylan and small, Tom Waits. Small fry. Small fry. Yeah. Um, he opened for Dylan and worked with Iggy Pop. Now, opened for Iggy Pop and stuff like that and in Europe. And I think he thought he went toe to toe. So he was just an ambitious guy and with the talent to back it up. Yeah, he, he always had visions for all the records he made, even the record that came after Born Sandy, which is In the Pines. In the Pines, in the Pines, where the sun. Never shines Where we go running When we want to hide Away from the sky Away from the lights Where the overgrown branches Conceal what's inside In the pines In the pines Where I take my bride wanted to make a record like that. That album sounds to me like the band and then Dylan doing the basement tapes. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that, well, it was called the Shearing Shed tapes or the Shearing Shed record. So yes, that I, I think that's a fairly accurate comparison. I think the other thing is that the record that was released at the time of In the Pines has got all of the songs that Dave wanted to save for their major label debut, which was Island Records released Calenture. And there's that he recorded versions of things like Hometown Farewell Kiss and Blinded by the Hour and Trick of the Light that all ended up on the released version of Calenture. But at the time, he chose to leave those off in the pines to be saved for his major label debut. So, you know, he was an ambitious cat. But the, the remastered, reissued version of In the Pines has restored the songs that Dave chose to leave off. Right, so, I, I, that's the edition I've got. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, quite, they're quite different things. Yeah, well, because I think that the story goes that you know, the Trippets hold themselves up in this shed a long way from anywhere, and they'd only go out every day to buy more beer, and they'd fuel themselves and go and record these songs in a, I guess, this friendly environment or fairly earthy environment. And it's it's an earthy sounding album. Mm, it um, is, and it's the complete antithesis of what came after it, which was oh, a absolutely a glossy, orchestrated, in some cases slightly overproduced 80s pop record right which is where I mean coming back to Born Sandy Devotional you've already gone and said that it was possibly the pinnacle of all his realised all all the visions that he wanted and you could debate either way it's subjective about the songwriting because you know he maintained this great level of songwriting across all of the albums but yes you're right with Born Sandy Devotional was playing a little bit with you know reverb and a little bit of orchestral arrangements and the like but by the time Callancher and even to a degree you know the Black Swan which I know you've told me privately was uh, a toss up between the Black Swan and Treeless Plane for the one you wanted to talk about but those two albums do sound like products of their time still you know great albums but very much product of their time was Born Sandy Devotional I think could have been released today and would still sound for at least it, it certainly does to my ears oh for sure a- absolutely but the other thing is that Calenture is exactly the re- not exactly but it's pretty close to the record Dave wanted to make he wanted to make a glossy 80s pop record mm. and it cost a friggin fortune 
the amount of money is still being talked about. It's It cost an <laughs> awful lot of money. It was considered, yeah, anyway, yeah, I shouldn't really get into that. Okay. Um, let, let, but, let's talk a little bit about, a little bit more about Trillis Plane because that was, that's the focus of this show. That's uh, true. Folks out there, we're, this is Pat over there and Morris over here. We're talking about Trillis Plane, the debut album of the Triffids, just in case you've forgotten, but we've been going to some really fantastically interesting places. I think I might have already mentioned the word flat, which may not necessarily be the correct word, but I think that the big problem that I have with Treeless Plane is, and this comes down to the production rather than the bands playing, it's the sense of dynamic, the light and shade that help, you know, contrasting, you know, the rumbling moments from, you know, with, with the full on drama. So song I want to particularly refer to in this regard is My Baby Thinks She's a Train. great example you know we get the intro with the the clicking of the fingers and the and Elsie on the hi-hat bringing that sort of swinging type of tempo that swinging feel and when by the time it's supposed to explode into the chorus and you know, Elsie's on you know playing this pattern on the toms it's supposed to explode and yet there's something about the production you think this doesn't sound to me like what it should have been going for nothing with the band arrangement no problem there but the sound on the record just sounds like it's supposed to be building this up and on a song like on you know born sandy devotional we keep coming back to this life of crime it seems like they get that light and shade and drama sort of contrasted just right but it's equivalent on this album my baby thinks she's a train which really is a dramatic song it it, it misses that sense of dynamic does that make sense and and oh sure and uh, you know there's probably a case to be made that the type of song that Life of Crime is that My Baby Thinks She's a Train was the practice run for for that song. Sure. And I think that it's with no disrespect to Nick Mainsbridge and no disrespect to the Triffids or anything like that. It could well have been that a recording studio. It could well have been just through. But how can I put it? Um, how about recording between midnight and six a.m.? Yeah, but also the Triffids were a better band by the time they made Born Sandy Devotional. You know, sure. they, they Marty had only been in the band roughly a year by the time they made Treeless Plane, and I think my baby thinks she's a train had only been written. Six Six months maybe before it, it had been recorded jill had only been the keyboard player and um, she, she says it herself she was still learning how to be a keyboard player she'd only been in the band for maybe six to eight months herself so it's conceivable that it's just that they were a better band a, a better unit from touring 
England two or three times, from touring Europe two or three times, and Australia countless times. And Dave was a better songwriter. I, I, I remember My Baby Thinks She's a Train being like, as you would suggest, an absolutely storming song, live and sort of fun on the record, but live something a little more disturbing or disturbed. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I think the key is that they became a better band by the time they did Born Sandy Devotional and also by that time Graham Lee was in the band and, right. um, as Dave said, he wasn't playing any of that country shit. Uh, <laughs> You know, that's what Dave, when he got in the band, Dave said, look, yeah, I want you to play pedal steel, but none of that country shit. And Graham looked at him like, what? <laughs> and um, kind of figured out what he had to do, which is what Dave McComb said. But And yet albums like In the Pines really do indicate that you know, David had a love of country. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, he loved Graham Parsons. Right. He loved the, you know, it took him a long time, but he loved the Stones version of country music. But And he loved Bob Dylan's version of country music. And the band's version of country music, but all the people he liked who did country music were kind of mavericks, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. And you know, he liked, they they would the Triffids used to cover Johnny Cash from you know probably 1981. But well, I mean, you get a song on on this album like Old Ghost Rider. <laughs> Just imagine them if David had had the nerve, you know, he, he would have sent it off to Johnny Cash and said, Excuse me, Mr. Cash, would you mind covering this song? And I think it would have worked maybe like on the American recordings of the, uh, or the was it the late 90s or early 2000s? Yeah. I think that, that song like Old Ghost Rider would have sounded perfect in Johnny Cash's. Yeah, although I think Dave would have been too embarrassed because I think Old Ghost Rider's kind of, there's bits of it that are taken from. You know, Ghost Rider in the Sky. Sure. And also a suicide song called Ghost Rider. The key kind of country element of Treeless Lane is probably the Bob Dylan cover, which is I Am a Lonesome Hobo. And this sounds like 10,000 miles away from the John Wesley Harding um, version. It, it, it probably has, I reckon that they might have built it up about the same time that they were uh, building up My Baby Thinks She's a Train because it has that same level of menace. And, mm. you know, and, and really, I'm, I'm still sort of thinking, said, what you said earlier on in the show about David saying they were a wimpy band and those two songs, if nothing else, proved they were nothing of the sort, at least on this album. It, it's mm. it, it's not it's not 
my favourite production, and yet I use that word muscular again. And you've gone and said, you know, Martin Casey was a big reason for that. But the way Elsie McDonald's toms are mic'd up, it's so close, and it, that's what gives it that muscular sound. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am a lonesome hobo. It's I'm a big fan of bands who say, right, we're not going to be a carbon copy of, you know, we're not going to do a cover version that sounds like what we love because you can buy the original. We're going to do something completely different. And he's succeeded really, really well there. Mm. Well, I think John Wesley Harding was a, a really pivotal record for David McComb. If you read Bledon Butcher's excellent book about David, which is called Save What You Can, Bledon quite rightly points out, and Dave acknowledged it completely, that um, John Wesley Harding and the third Velvet Underground album, The Velvet Underground, taught David how to be a better songwriter. Mm. And he learned how to write in the third person by pretty much forensically studying those records and listening to Nick Cave, particularly in The Birthday Party and the first Bad Seeds record is how he learned to write, not just as in I, but to write in the third person. So I think Dylan's was always a big influence on Dave and not kind of the typical Dylan albums. Mm. Dave had a lot of time for Slow Time Coming and Saved. Yes. And John Wesley Harding and those early 70s albums. Yeah, he was a funny cat when it came to him. Dave was the only person I've ever met who would say something like, this is a bad example, but because it's not true of this band, but he would say things like, I love the Pet Shop Boys, <laughs> which is cool. And he'd go, I love the Pet Shop Boys, but he'll only like one song. Right. I go, I love the Pointer Sisters. And he did, but he'll only like one song. Right. And it, for him, he just said, that was enough. But, and he would take something from all those bands. And it would be in, like, there's, there's little lifts from all those kind of bands throughout the Triffitt's career, but you can't hear them unless, he, you know, someone tells you. Points anyway, mm. But, yeah, you're right. I think Dave always thought that a well-executed interpretation of a song could protect, like, it was often better than a, um, a poorly executed original composition. So sure. I, I think I'm a Lonesome Hobo also stayed in their set for a long time. Mm. But um, the other song off Treeless Plane that stayed in their set forever was Red Pony. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I wanted to speak to you about next. We're talking a lot about production on this album, or at least I anyway, keep bringing this up. But this is one of two songs on the album that, but two songs for very different reasons, that sound like away from the rest of the album. Red Pony, I guess it, it still does sound like it belongs on Treeless Plane, but by virtue of the fact that they have some level of orchestration as well playing with the band. It doesn't sound as dangerous or oppressive as you know the songs we've just spoken about. And probably at it's really it's the two bookends on the album. So there's Red Pony and Nothing Can Take Your Place. Is is that Robert on vocals? No, that's Alzi. Oh, that's Alzi. Okay, uh, and that sounds maybe more like 
the I, I don't like to use the word wimpy, but you've already got oh, no, it. Is, enough. That, that, that was one of Alzi's showpieces in the okay. early days of the trip, so for sure. And I think um, I imagine Alzi was really nervous about recording that song, and I think Dave. He doesn't sound uh, confident. No, uh, well, he, you know, he wasn't the world's most amazing singer, but I think you know Dave was his friend, and it was an it's 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 an aspect of the Triffids that I think Dave wanted if to immortalize, I guess, record that for all the darkness and you know dark themes and things like that that there was this lightness that david and the rest of the band were huge fans of you know the beach boys the beatles girl group sounds in particular were you know phil Spector and all george shadow morton the Redbird label all, all those things were huge in dave's record collections he often suggested that was the pinnacle of pop music so that's emblematic of that facet of the Triffids. And it's also one of the reasons I like this like this record so much is because at that time, there was no one else in Australia who covered that range of styles or genres. I don't really like, that's not the right word. Styles will do. And I also think that once he'd done it, he didn't need to do it again. Yeah. So he never really went back to nothing can take your place. But Red Pony stayed there forever. Now, Red, Red Pony musically sounds like... I mean, okay, I, I'm, I'm sure that words have been said by wiser people than myself that there's at least something of a vocal approach that David shared with Jim Morrison of The Doors. Yeah, he got that a lot. I, I have no idea whether he liked the comparison or not, but it's, it's not so much because he had the same sort of baritone that Jim Morrison had, but I think there's something of his dramatic approach. Rather than just singing the song, he was going to really make it you know, dramatic and mm. but there's something about red pony that reminds me as well of the doors song spanish caravan sure so uh, you tell me was was he a, a doors fan or a jim Morrison? Uh, dave, fan dave liked the doors but he liked their hits okay you know what I mean? he liked their pop songs he likes like my fire and people are strange mm. and love me two times and touch me and i guess roadhouse blues and stuff like that sure i think that you know the psychodrama poetry I think he thought was a bit tiresome. However, <laughs> I do recall once being at a Triffids and they did all of side two of LA Woman in the correct order. Wow. Which is pretty funny. And just I, I can you know, hear it work. I can really hear it working. You know, just um, now yeah. that you mentioned that, I think in my head I think, yes, that would work. They were great students of pop music, so but you you're right, Red Pony is, you know, it's dramatic in the same way that I guess the doors are. The, the language is really evocative. Mm. He uses interesting ways to say mundane things. Like sand in your eyes and sun upon your back is a way of basically she's on the beach. Mm. But it's just said in a really beautiful way. And I think Dave by then had really figured out how to be a songwriter. And that's why Red Pony, I think Red Pony was one of the first songs where he went, wow, yeah, okay, I, this doesn't really, this might sound a little bit like The Doors, but it doesn't really, and it doesn't really sound like anybody else. It sounds like me. Yep. And Hell of a Summer, even though it live, it would kind of often go into this kind of strange kind of disco kind of New Orderish kind of breakdown <laughs> uh, in, in the middle of it. It made sense when you heard it. Dave was a big fan of New Order and Joy Division but mm -hmm. and big disco fan too. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Those two songs, Red Pony and Nothing Can Take Your Place.
basically the two flip sides of, of the band for that at that time they illustrate the band really quite well and it was interesting at the time there was there was lots of people who wanted to hear more of red pony that kind of style of song sure which they went on to with raining pleasure and then the field of glass ep and then into born sandy with you know high drama and you know people kind of lost it not necessarily in the literal wilderness but in a metaphorical wilderness and nothing can take your place is really kind of illustrates what the triffids for a while were known as Perth's premier existentialist wimp dance band, <laughs> described by a good friend of mine and a, a great influence on my musical taste. A guy called Chris Wright called them that in about 1980, and it stuck for a very long time. So do, so you, have, do you have a category for that at uh, Rocksteady Records? Existentialist wimp, wimp dance band? Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I might have get onto that on Tuesday. Uh, but that nothing can take your place in lots of ways is illustrates that reasonably well. As much as it's a you know a heartfelt romantic song, there were lots of people who didn't want the Triffids to become a dramatic, touching the big themes kind of musical juggernaut, if you know what I mean, without sounding like I don't know, cold chisel. But they didn't want them to become a band led by a poet. They wanted a, a, a dance band. And in lots of ways, the more I think about it, the positioning of that song at the risk of being cinematic about it was Dave going, well, pretty much this is it. It ends here, mm. that, that kind of thing. And I think his next plan was when he spoke to James Patterson, who is one of the few guys Dave co-wrote songs with. And James said that something like that, the key to the future was that your quiet songs need to be louder and your loud songs need to be quieter while staying at the same volume which is another way of saying, I think, a whisper can be scarier than a scream. Sure. And I think Red Pony is the signpost for that kind of thing. Mm. And songs like Nothing Can Take Your Place While Charming were songs from the past. And he was just going, well, I'm putting this at the end of our first album. What he saw as being our first album could have been their only album, but in his mind it was their first album. And that's where that kind of stuff stops. So, you know, I, I admire, I always admired his ability to just go, this is what I'm doing. If you don't like it, that's a shame, but I've got to do it anyway. Mm. Um, and by this point, you know, the Triffids were actually a, a kind of a big deal in Sydney and in Melbourne. They pulled big crowds in, in, in the circuit that they played in and their, their albums topped what were then the independent charts in Ram and Duke and things like that. Who was giving them the support back in the day? I mean, what in Melbourne was Triple R and PBS? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Neil Rogers used to book Triffids tours. Say the first five times they came through Melbourne, he booked four of those tours. And he, I think he, Neil might have been on PBS then, mm. and he would have been playing them. They would have been played on Triple R and PBS. They would have sold records at a go-go and Gaslight and Greville and Missing Link and places like that. And they would have played the Tote and then moved up to places like Prince Wales and similar venues in Sydney. I mean, they became a really kind of, they ruled Sydney for a while mm. in lots of ways. And then they just had to get out and get to England after they'd gone back to Perth for a, you know, a quick money-making tour of Perth in, in, the, in summer. And then I think, when was it? They went, just trying to remember. Would have been 84, 80, I think 80, 84, they went to 
England for the first time. In advance of our discussion, I'd watched the Great Albums documentary that I think had shown on SBS a few years ago, but it's now on YouTube, about the recording of Bourne's Sandy Devotional. And it did say that when the Triffids made it to England, that they uh, played and toured around England with the go-betweens. And, you know, we've already gone and made the musical connection, but there was a very real connection that sense. We were speaking before about nothing can take your place. How, how does this sort of strike you? Just sort of listening to it, it makes me think a little bit of the reels. Remember them, the band out of Dubbo? <laughs> was a huge fan of the reels and a huge fan of Dave Mason in particular. Dave was always making compilation cassettes for his friends at Christmas or their birthdays and you know you'd suddenly get a package in the mail from Stockholm and it would be Dave McComb having made you a big star compilation. Oh, nice. Um, in, you know, which also, that's the other thing. In 1984, when still a lot of people had not heard of Big Star, Dave McComb was just banging on about Big Star's third being one of the greatest records ever made. Anyway, with I, I remember him coming around my house and going, where are all your real singles? <laughs> and me going, here you go. Anyway, great. See you later. <laughs> and he made a Reels compilation cassette called Love Won't Annihilate Hatred and gave it out to all his friends. He And all over the world, there's all these people, you know, no doubt hundreds of them who have copies of the Reels, Love Won't Annihilate Hatred, as collated by David McComb. That's fantastic. Um, all with hand-designed covers and all of them different. He was very passionate about pop music. So, yes, I, I'd say that even though you know, Nothing Can Take Your Place is not an amazing song, I think the comparison to the Reels would, you know, I think that's a, a, a fairly worthy comparison and one that wouldn't offend anybody. Sure. Um, at the same, by the same token, it wasn't written by Dave. Alzi wrote it. Oh, okay. But I'm sure that the arrangement was also part of Dave's thing and he would have recognised within Alzi's songwriting that if not a homage to the reels then certainly a love of the same sort of source material that the reels would have been fond of so you know it's a valid kind of observation for sure because I know that you still have a few things that you need to get on with tonight so we'll wrap this up shortly but I just wanted to talk about one or two more songs in particular and bring up once again the dramatic sound versus the uh more playful sound and by saying playful I've already kind of given away one of the songs and that's uh, there's a song Plaything Lord has our best 
whilst it's not quite as, I don't know, we're coming back to that word wimpy, like nothing can take your place, but it's, in some ways it's a more interesting song because I see it as, you know, it's musically playful, but there's something that's a little bit sinister about the lyric. Oh, for sure. And I'm wondering, you can tell me, you know, was uh, was David a fan of, of Daphne du Maurier or Alfred Hitchcock? Because there's something in there as a touch of Rebecca, you know, the only good ones are dead ringer for the real thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah, I reckon that's a pretty astute um, assessment, Morris. I, I know Dave was a big film fan. So, yeah, I mean, there's a song on there called A Place in the Sun. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's entirely fine. You know, property is condemned which was the single or the B-side of the single that came after this is a film title. So, yeah, for sure. Did he, um, did he study much cinema history yeah, while he was did, at university? He did, he did film and television as an elective and at Wake when he was studying his English degree. And I think he, towards the end of his life, he ended up writing film and book reviews and things like that for the ABC, for Radio National. I think I had read that, yes. So I think we've had a jolly good sort of chat, uh, I guess a lot more about the life of David McComb and the band of the Triffids than so much about the album itself. But I, I'd like to hope that any of the listeners out there who may not have this album in their lives will have got a fair idea, uh, as well through the little music clips we've been playing, what the album was like and what the band were like in general and will want to follow up. Uh, so, you know, Pat, any final thoughts that you wanted to convey about uh, Treeless Plane or, or the Triffids in general? The Triffids in general, I think, have become increasingly well-loved since Dave died. And I think he would have been surprised he would have been really happy i know i spoke to him shortly before he died he felt forgotten and at a bit of a loss but also you know i think vaguely optimistic at the time we had a few plans to do some things but that didn't happen the great thing to me about treeless plane is that it shows that by and large david mccomb was able to overcome stumbling steps or roadblocks or whatever you want to call them in that in the year leading up he got dropped by the record label he had to find a new bass player a new keyboard player a new record contract and a new way of writing songs or writing a different kind of song and he did all those and made a debut album that sounded like nobody else in australia certainly that's what i love about it it's it captures the Triffids at a particular time. It signposts the future, and it also bookends another end, another part of their career. So, along with the Black Swan, it's it's my favourite Triffids album. Wow. When you sort of like list off all those things consecutively, it really does present the picture that you know, well. In that regard, he was a, a huge success. You know, it doesn't matter that he didn't he didn't sell you know, millions of records or anything like that, but just the fact that he was able to achieve what he wanted on his terms really just shows him yeah as a as a big success and artistically if at any rate but also it seems that they were well loved in some circles at the time and, and their, their stature has grown and possibly some of that's due to uh, evil graham lee is he the one who's been behind any of these triffids well, maybe not reformations but I, I know that there's something happening later on this year i believe i've heard I yeah they're, they're playing at the meredith music festival i think it's been a few things i think bledon's book has given people an insight into the price Dave paid for what he achieved and also the drive and the ambition and his talent. I think certainly Graham's work in getting those reissues out and also Martin, Martin Casey. I think if, if he hadn't been a bad seed, 
as in a member of that band. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if people, I think that that kind of made people aware that, wow, this guy's really cool. Oh, he used to be in another band. What band was that? <laughs> I, I think people kind of downplay Martin's, that, the significance of that. And also people like, you know, Jonathan Alley is putting a film together mm. and there's been people all over the world who've said what a great songwriter Dave was. I think Paul Kelly's probably almost tired of saying it. <laughs> and Robert Forster is as much as he loved Dave and they were really good friends. I think Robert's almost tired of saying it because yeah. he said it so often. So, and then you've got guys like Courtney Barnett mentioned him in a, mentioned the Triffids in a song. You said, I guarantee we'll have more fun. Drink till the moon becomes the sun. And in the taxi home, I'll sing you a Triffid song. So all those kind of things introduce them to younger people and different sorts of people. So that's all good. I, I think Dave would be really pleased and he'd be proud. And, you know, he, he was a really nice guy. He was what, probably the most courteous human being I've ever met in my life, nice. as well as furiously intelligent. And I think about him every two or three days because he was just, he was, I wouldn't say we were best friends, but I'd like to say we would think we were good friends. And I learned an awful lot from him and I still am. And it's been a real pleasure to kind of talk to you tonight about him and the Triffids because sometimes you kind of forget sure. how it was harder then, you know. Perth was a long it's, – it's still the same distance away from Melbourne, strangely enough. But <laughs> The country hasn't shrunk. Uh, well, hmm, uh, I think that's a different topic. Um, <laughs> I think it seemed a lot further away then. And, you know, Dave had a pretty comfortable life in Perth and he left it time and time and time again. And uh, his bravery, which is probably an overused word, but I'm going to call it that, his courage. I'm still in awe of it because I don't, you know, I think that's a level of ambition and drive that I don't think I've got. So, yeah, hats off. Well done, David McCoy. And, we, you know, really as well, I guess hats off to all the band for, you know, helping him realise that vision. So you've already gone to mention Jill Burt on keyboards, Elsie McDonald on drums, Robert McComb on guitar and violin. And really, I think that violin is a very distinctive sound. For on sure. On Treeless Plane, we haven't sort of gone and made mention of that too much. And Martin Casey on bass giving that muscular sound that we've uh, brought mm. up before. I should probably just at this stage also a story I should have probably brought up a lot earlier on but I hadn't sort of really come into being a Triffids fan until maybe the last 10 years or something and it started off with the greatest hits but the, my first real exposure to them was via my favourite Australian band of all time which is Weddings Parties Anything and I know that Mick Thomas was a big big fan and they covered very very differently but they covered Wide Open Road in their set quite a lot but with a, a lot more of a real acoustic guitar feel and there was uh, and a mandolin played I think by Paul Thomas it was always such a the, the lyric and the melody really struck me it was, it was great and a lovely melody and then when I went to the Triffids version I wasn't in a right mind to accept it for what it was well the drums went up in my forehead the drums went up in my chest remember carrying the baby just for you Crying in the wilderness I lost track of my friends Lost my chin I crossed them off my list And I drove out over the flatlands Hunting down you and him Well the sky was big and empty My chest filled to explode And I yelled my inside out at the sun It's a wide open road It's a wide It's a wide open road It's a wide open road 
this sounds nothing like what the Wettos did. No, and I just rejected it out of hand. But you know, time and maturity and that Greatest Hits album convinced me just what an absolute treasure that song is. And it sounds like it's recorded in the desert and it really evokes the feel of driving along some Western Australian highway. It's a metaphor mm. for a relationship, but I think the whole notion of being on a highway even looking at its surface level it still works and yeah i, I mean i love the widow's version but now i think my the triffids one is the, the original sort of has overtaken you know my, my feelings for the widow's version which is still very very strong mm. so um all right so I, I should say thank you very very much pat i'm so excited that you know my first show back has been with you this has been a long oh, time thanks coming. man yeah we're, it's been fun we're, we were gonna do a show together a few years ago and circumstances with another presenter who i won't go into at this point in time sort of push that out of the way you know, for the, you know possibly for the worst but i'm finally glad that you've made it and i hope that as soon as i get a new modem that this won't be your last appearance on the podcast oh, no, but i'd be it'd be a pleasure morris i've had a lot of fun thanks man thank you so much so for uh you listeners out there i should just sort of do a little bit of housekeeping if you want to send me any feedback saying that you're digging the show or say no nah, you suck go back to the uh, guest presenters you can email me at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au you can join on the Facebook group facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album always willing to uh, see some new members join and indulge in some music discussion it's always a good thing and I should talk a little bit about uh, next month's show so episode 94 which will be out in September of 2016 uh, I'm going to be joined by a good friend of mine Julian Gillis who hasn't been on the show in a while he's been on a couple of times and I'll talk more about it in the show but Julian introduced me back in I think 1989 to the band which we'll be discussing next month and the album indeed the band is not drowning waving the album is claim that i think that album was probably where our friendship started we met under circumstances which we'll talk about in the show and that was how we bonded was uh, that album and i'm also very very excited because i've managed to secure an interview with the lead singer and songwriter of not drowning waving and many other projects since then mr david bridey he's going to be coming onto the show and talking about his recollections about claim in particular and most likely about not drowning waving in general so uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you again in September of 2016 so until then uh, once again many thanks to Pat for joining me this time around and if you're out there listening to the show please you know, follow up with some Triffids and just listen to some good records some bad records go out and buy something nice share it with your friends share it with people on the Facebook group let people know what you know and maybe they'll dig off those sounds that they didn't know make it something strong part of people's lives be nice to each other and we'll see you again in September thanks very much for listening Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.